for those of you who've just joined us who weren't at the annual general meeting we've just had, um, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm James Watt, the outgoing chairman of CBRL. Um, and I have actually just been replaced in that position by our very dear friend, Professor Robert Bewley of Oxford University, and I wish him all success uh, in his tenure as uh, chairman for the next four years. And I'm absolutely delighted to um, introduce uh, our speakers this evening uh, for the lecture, um, which follows the annual general meeting. And traditionally, this has been the major lecture of the year. Um, and it's going to be uh, on the subject of migration diplomacy in the Levant, lessons from the Syrian refugee crisis. And we have, as uh, giving the talk, Dr. Gerasma Surapas, uh, who is well known as uh, an expert on the, on the matter, with uh, who's drawn on extensive interviews conducted across uh, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey in the context of the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, we're extremely grateful to him for giving this talk. And he will be in conversation with the director of our institute uh, in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem, the, the uh, Kenyan Institute, um, his Dr. Uh, Tufik Haddad, uh, who is also the deputy director of uh, CBRL. Extremely grateful to him as well. So hoping that um, we are now have our listeners in place and able to hear us. Um, I'm going to hand over straight away to Dr. Tofik Haddad. Thank you, Tofik. Thank you, James, for that introduction. For those of us or those who are on the webinar who have not attended before and who are perhaps less familiar with the Council for British Research in the Levant, uh, I just wanted to sort of give a little uh, introduction to who we are. We're an independent UK registered charity that engages in uh, humanities and social science research in the Levant, uh, aiming to be the UK's portal into the region. We are supported by the British Academy and are part of one of a cluster of eight different international research institutes. Uh, the institute which I direct, the Kenyan Institute in Jerusalem, has been around for more than 100 years. And uh, this today's seminar or seminar uh, webinar is uh, uh, part of obviously the, the new virtual world that we uh, entered in terms of uh, a successful series of webinars that we've, that we've held so far. Uh, this is, I believe is the 15th so far and we're very excited for uh, to have uh, Dr. Gerasimos Surapas, if I get the name correct, who is also a board member for, and trustee of, of the Council for British Research in the Levant, uh, speaking about a very interesting topic uh, today, that of the question of Syrian refugees and uh, uh, what he calls uh, uh, refugee rentierism. So this, uh, I, I imagine we have a very interested audience in this subject and he's very much an expert on it. Uh, before, uh, before uh, well, let me go straight to actually introducing uh, 
Gerasimos. Uh, He's a senior lecturer in Middle East politics at the University of Birmingham. Uh, and his research focuses on the politics of migrants, refugees, and diasporas in the Middle East and the global South. He's written on the international dimensions of authoritarianism as well. Gerasimos's first book, The Politics of Migration in Modern Egypt, Strategies for Regime Survival in Autocracies, which came out from Cambridge Press in 2019, was awarded the 2020 Enmisa Distinguished Book Award by the International Studies Association. His second book, Migration Diplomacy in the Middle East and North Africa, Power, Mobility and the State, is forthcoming with Manchester University Press. Before I hand things over to Gerasimos to present what we envision will be a roughly 20 minute lecture, followed by a 15 to 20 minute engagement on my behalf with him, followed by an opening up of, uh, of, the, uh, of the forum for questions from the audience. I, I, uh, a few housekeeping notes. Uh, if you would like, this, this um, uh, webinar is being recorded as we speak and uh, there were more than 160 people who were registered for it to begin with. Should you like to actually ask a question or, uh, or make a point, please do so, but you will only be able to do so from uh, the Zoom room itself, from the question and answer uh, button at the bottom of your screen. We are also live streaming this on Facebook, which tends to get us a lot more traffic as well. Keep, please keep your questions to uh, uh, short and pithy, and uh, we will go through them and I will try and do my best to go through as many questions as I can to, to point them to Gerasimos. Uh, with that introduction, I will hand over to Gerasimos now to take us away with migration diplomacy in the Levant, lessons from the Syrian refugee crisis. Take it away, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much to Fik, thank you James, and of course thank you to, to CBRL for uh, extending this, this very kind invitation to present the um, annual lecture, uh, AGM lecture this year, uh, on a topic that's particularly dear to me, uh, migration diplomacy in the Levant. Uh, this is arguably um, something that continues to uh, affect world politics today, some uh, almost 10 years now since the beginning of the, the Syrian civil war. Uh, one way to, to get us going in this uh, 20 minutes I have to talk to you is this visual uh, image, this picture of the uh, Zaatari camp in Jordan, of course, a uh, refugee camp built for Syrians uh, by the Jordanian government, partly uh, in order to make the issue of uh, Syrian refugees in Jordan visible to the international community. So this is a camp, arguably the, the, the largest organized concentration of Syrian refugees in the world. Uh, and it is built by the Jordanian government to demonstrate the extent of this issue to an international audience. And the rationale behind this uh, forms part of what I'm, I'm gonna talk to you today. Uh, two, two questions uh, drive this project forward. Uh, first is how do refugee flows feature in the foreign policies of host states of first asylum? Uh, and by that we mean countries, particularly across the global south, uh, that are tasked with managing influxes of refugees and asylum seekers as the first respondents, uh, quote unquote. Uh, these are countries um, such as Jordan, Lebanon, but also uh, states like Pakistan, Kenya, and a number of, of other sub-Saharan African and Latin American countries that are tasked with managing a uh, very large number of refugees with very meager resources. 
Uh, so the question that drives this pro project forward is, well, how do they manage this? And, and how does their foreign policy um, allow them to manage refugees in a sort of sustainable manner? Uh, and more concretely, the second question has to do with the Syrian refugee crisis itself. How has the Syrian refugee crisis affected two states' diplomacy in particular, the Jordanian state and the Lebanese state? And how have they used foreign policy to manage the influx of Syrians within their territory? It might not make immediate sense to compare Jordan and Lebanon, but I argue uh, that these countries uh, share a number of important similarities. Uh, for this project, what is particularly interesting is that both of them uh, developed uh, very similar responses that have to do with portraying the two countries as uh, suffering or being on the verge of a state collapse as a result of the refugee influx. Uh, so we see King Abdallah, for instance, uh, in, um, of Jordan, uh, talking uh, to a number of international venues throughout this crisis uh, and making the very urgent for him point that Jordan is going through some really difficult times. Jordan has had it up to here. Uh, unemployment, the health sector, the educational sector is suffering as a result of an influx of uh, Syrians. And this is something that the, the Syrian, um, the, uh, the Jordanian state can no longer cope with. Uh, so he's making a very urgent plea uh, repeatedly in, in, as a matter of fact, that is shared by uh, Lebanese policymakers and elites. Uh, this is an example of a quote from Hariri, Prime Minister Hariri, a few months after King Abdallah made his uh, plea to uh, the American uh, audience. Uh, Hariri talks to a Brussels conference on Syria, uh, and he said, well, very similarly, uh, Lebanon is also at a breaking point. Uh, the international community needs to realize that uh, Lebanon is, uh, is having a severely, uh, is, is being severely affected uh, by the Syrian refugee crisis. And in fact, Hariri goes as far as to uh, name a particular uh, price that this, the international community should offer in terms of a material aid uh, to the Lebanese state for it to cope with the crisis. And he says, well, the international community should be prepared to pay at least $10,000 uh, per refugee in Lebanon for a period of at least uh, half a decade. Uh, what makes it interesting here is the extent to which material benefits are linked with uh, narratives of state crisis in both countries. And in fact, this is shared by a number of states worldwide. Uh, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, states that are inundated with refugees make similar pleas to the international community of varying degrees of urgency. Um, and this is quite interesting from um, my perspective, which is a political science perspective, because we, we lack a, an international relations approach that allows us to see how migration might fit in the foreign policy making of states or international organizations. What I argue, uh, drawing on work that I've completed with Fiona Adamson, a colleague at SOAS at the University of London, is that we've entered an era in international relations in which migration forms a target of um, foreign policy making for states, both of Europe and North America, as well as of the global south. And indeed, I argue we should be talking about migration diplomacy. We should be talking about how states use diplomatic processes uh, and procedures to manage cross-border mobility. Um, and if anyone is interested, the, the article on this is available uh, as an open access article for all of you to, to peruse. 
What is of interest for us here, looking at the Syrian refugee crisis, of course, is that how, how migration diplomacy sort of trickles down to specific policy making on the Jordanian and Lebanese levels. What I argue in this project is that we need to look at refugees as arguably a form of or an instrument of rent. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the concept of, of rent, uh, what this means and how it's used in political economy circles has to do with uh, resources uh, that are available for states that are um, then be able to be drawn upon for uh, material gain. Most usually we talk about rent in the form of energy or natural resources. So oil rentier states are states like Saudi Arabia or Libya that are able to draw on the vast natural resources in order to finance a large part of the state bureaucracy. Um, Israel, for instance, would be uh, a strategic rentier state, given the, the reliance on external income, namely from the United States, because of the strategic relationship between um, Washington and uh, Israel. I argue very similarly that we should be talking about refugee rentier states, states that host a large number of forcibly displaced population group or groups, and which have come to rely financially on external rent, on refugee rent, in order to survive, uh, and which is linked to this state's treatment of refugees. In fact, I argue that we should be exploring how states develop refugee rent-seeking behavior, behavior that looks towards third states, looks towards international organizations for varying types of refugee rent, such as direct economic aid, grants, debt relief, preferential trade treatment, and so on and so forth. Of course, what's interesting here has to do with the um, varying use of rent in the natural resources versus the refugee side of this. Whereas states like the GCC states would receive funds from international actors in exchange for sharing their natural resources, states that have an inordinate amount of forcibly displaced populations would be expected to receive uh, material uh, benefits from abroad in exchange for containing these populations within their borders rather than, than sharing them. So this is um, what I'm exploring in this project. And to make this a bit more concrete, perhaps, we can look at Jordan, first of all. Jordan signs in 2016 a, a partnership agreement with the European Union, uh, which is an actor increasingly um, willing to uh, ensure that refugees uh, to put it quite bluntly, do not make it to the shores of European member states and engages in a specific agreement uh, called the Jordan Compact in 2016, in which the Jordanian uh, state receives 700 millions of grants plus 700 million more in the coming financial year in exchange for uh, maintaining uh, Syrian refugees within the state's borders. The compact argues that what is needed is a new paradigm that promotes economic development, both for Syrian refugee communities, as well as Jordanians. And this is something that is quite new in the policy world. Um, and in fact, one of the things that the Jordan Compact stresses is that we need to be looking at the Syrian refugee crisis, not as a crisis, but as an opportunity. And in fact, as a developmental opportunity that will allow the Jordanian economy to prosper and therefore the Jordanian uh, population and the Syrian population within that country to also prosper. 
Uh, if you look across this uh, document that is still very much valid today, we'll see that uh, Jordan is afforded a number of material benefits. One of them has to do with gaining access to the World Bank's concessional financing facility, gaining access to over $147 million worth of low interest loans uh, that are usually uh, not available to that kind of state. Uh, however, Jordan, given its um, condition as a refugee host country, is able to prosper from this over the last few years. At the same time, uh, Jordan uh, is tasked with integrating refugees into specific parts of its economy, namely the special economic zones of the country. And this is aimed at uh, integrating Syrian refugees within the Jordanian labor market. And it's seen as an important step towards the empowerment of Syrian uh, forcibly displaced communities that are now living within Jordan. Uh, what is interesting here is that in exchange for opening up its labor market to Syrian refugees, the European Union is, uh, has been willing to grant um, Jordan tariff-free access uh, for goods produced within those special economic uh, zones. So there is a distinct financial benefit for Jordan to allow refugees into uh, Syrian, the, the, the Jordanian labor market. Um, the caveat here is that Jordan agrees to employ at least 200,000 uh, Syrians in these economic zones. Something very similar happens with Lebanon. Uh, in February 2016, Lebanon negotiates its own compact, the Lebanon Compact uh, within the auspices of the Lebanese, the Lebanon Crisis Response Plan. And this is a compact that offers uh, the Lebanese state some 400 million euros worth of aid. Uh, over and above, of course, existing pledges. Interestingly, here we see the same type of discourse that the situation needs to be turned into an opportunity, an opportunity that improves the socioeconomic prospects and stability for the whole of Lebanon. So we see, again, some linkages and some similarities between the two cases that, that need to be um, critiqued and uncovered. In fact, if we look at the particularities of the Lebanon Compact, we'll see precisely where this, um, I would say, refugee rent lies. And we'll see that Lebanon has been able to negotiate uh, a number of millions of euros to support all sorts of um, economic sectors and political sectors, arguably, in the Lebanese state that have little to do with Syrian refugees. So we have um, a few million euros earmarked for the national plan to safeguard children and women. Uh, we have all sorts of uh, money going into solid waste management programs, um, uh, money to support the Lebanese parliament, and so on and so forth. So these are all uh, examples, I argue, of refugee rent, of money coming in from abroad that is um, essentially of benefit to the Lebanese state, but doesn't really go directly uh, to the betterment of lives of uh, Syrian refugees. One would say on a, uh, on a first look of, uh, of all of this, well, that, that sounds quite positive, right? There, there is a win-win situation in which, actually triple win situation, in which the international community wins by avoiding spillover effects of refugees flowing into their territories. Um, the host states of first asylum, namely Jordan and Lebanon, benefit from this by uh, getting material benefits, and arguably the Syrian refugees themselves also benefit via uh, a trickle-down economics plan that will allow them to participate in um, the host state's economic uh, sectors. 
I argue um, that we need to approach these schemes a bit more critically. And in fact, I argue in this project that what we see here is um, migration diplomacy trickling its way dangerously close to something I would call refugee commodification or using refugees essentially as uh, instruments of economics and material gain. Uh, I argue that uh, both the Jordan Compact and the Lebanon Compact uh, proceed with a normative and substantive encouragement of using refugees for material gain. If you look at Jordan, for instance, what you'll see is that uh, for a number of reasons in 2013, they closed the Jordan, the Jordanian government closes the formal crossings with Syria that prevents the entry of Syrian uh, asylum seekers into Jordanian territory. What happens in fact is that we have border officials encouraging Syrians to enter the country via informal crossings. And this is something that has a distinct economic repercussion, uh, a positive one, because that means that given that they entered the country uh, informally, Syrians that did so are recognized prima facie as refugees. So this is something that allows the Jordanian government to increase its uh, estimates of, Jordan of Syrian refugees within its territory. Uh, perhaps more concretely in Lebanon, what we see is the establishment of a uh, law that uh, expects all Syrians over the age of 15 to pay a $200 residency fee from January 2015 onwards. This is something quite um, interesting and uh, given that about 70% of the Syrians living in Lebanon live below the poverty line. What this has led to, of course, is a number of arbitrary arrests uh, to um, of those Syrians that can't afford to pay the residency fee. Uh, and of course, that trickles down to even more refugee uh, rent-seeking behavior by local actors within police precincts uh, who have been accused of engaging with these uh, Syrians in order to release them informally in exchange for some, uh, for some uh, amount of money. From July 2014 onwards, for a bit of time, Jordan put forth a bailout process uh, in which Syrian refugees that were uh, within, that were living within uh, refugee camps were actually able to exit them if they had a sponsorship agreement with a Jordanian citizen. Um, what this meant is that we have a very interesting informal arrangement um, emerge in which, according to the UNHCR, we have Syrians paying middlemen about $500 in order to be bailed out by unknown Jordanian citizens. So yet again, this is an example of what I would call refugee rent, in which we have uh, Jordanian citizens benefiting from the plight of, of Syrian refugees eager to leave a refugee camp merely by the fact that they can um, sponsor them, uh, merely by the fact that they are Jordanian citizens. This becomes a bit more extreme in Lebanon, according to a number of reports that we see in Beirut and elsewhere, we have individuals in individual sponsorship sold for up to $1,000. Uh, so I have quotes that, that mention how sponsors, Lebanese citizens, are actually making a business out of selling sponsorships to uh, Syrian refugees. In fact, they wait on the Syrian border or they wait at the airport to sell a uh, sponsorship to new arrivals. What you see here, I argue, is this increasing trend towards refugee commodification, arguably um, encouraged by the state's own uh, tendency 
to look at refugees as a form of rent. If you, if you look more uh, closely at what happens to the national economies, uh, you'll see that uh, the, jo the Jordan Compact in particular has created a number of issues for other vulnerable communities in the country. You will see, for instance, that uh, I argue refugee rent leads to novel ways for uh, global South countries to become dependent on international donors. Uh, if you remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned that Jordan promises to provide 200,000 employment posts for Syrian refugees. Um, of course, uh, Jordan, for a number of reasons, is unable to provide these posts. Uh, and what ends up happening is this tension between Jordan and the international community. And of course, that trickles down uh, to a very deleterious effect, namely uh, an ongoing process of harassment and discrimination and also imprisonment and deportation of other vulnerable migrant and refugee communities. In particular, Egyptians um, had to face uh, a number of uh, Ministry of Labor campaigns against them, partly because this would, uh, I argue, pave the way for Syrians to be able to take up these much needed employment opportunities. So you see yet again, the extent to which this commodification of refugees is able to trickle down into uh, potentially harming other migrant and refugee groups within the country. Finally, what is interesting here, of course, is that this uh, refugee rent-seeking behavior tends to affect uh, how these states react to refugees themselves. Of course, the decision to construct refugee camps in Jordan uh, in order to render the displaced population visible to international uh, donors hopefully makes sense now. You can see why we have these pictures of the Zaatari camp and in its enormity, partly because Jordan wants to highlight this issue to attract more funding. What we have, of course, in, also in Jordan uh, in particular, is accusations of Syrian refugees' numbers being inflated uh, in order to magnify the issue that the state is facing. So uh, the numbers range anything from 650, 660,000 officially um, uh, registered refugees to 1.5 million, according to the Jordanian government. We have, of course, this ongoing narrative of crisis and state incapacity that we see in quotes by King Abdallah, by Hariri, and by a range of policymakers. Mm -hmm. I argue, of course, we can see that this is um, serving certain foreign policy purposes, but arguably it is also risking uh, inciting xenophobia, accentuating social tensions against these communities that are now seen as uh, scapegoats for unemployment, for um, inaccessible healthcare services, and so on and so forth. What is interesting here, of course, is the more we try to unpack these states and the migrant populations and refugee populations that live in them, we see that uh, Syrian refugees uh, tend to be perceived as more privileged vis-a-vis uh, -vis other migrant and refugee groups. I mentioned the example of Egyptians in uh, Jordan, but this is not all. Uh, one of the interesting things that is coming up here has to do with uh, how Syrian refugees are constantly or used to be uh, constantly at the uh, center of attention of international donors. And this, of course, marginalized the needs and the plight of a range of other refugee and migrant communities in both countries. Arguably, it also uh, um, marginalizes the plight of vulnerable Jordanian and Lebanese citizens as well, 
And this is something that we need to take into account. Uh, and the final point, because I've run out of time, has to do with, I argue, an ever-present phenomenon of policy diffusion, in the sense that um, the uh, amount of material gains that the uh, Jordanian and Lebanese state were able to accrue from the international community in 2016 have served arguably as examples, good or bad, depending on, on where you lie, in terms of how other states might respond to this. Uh, so uh, just a couple of examples we'll see, for instance, in Uganda, uh, where um, a, um, a long inquiry found that refugee numbers were exaggerated tremendously in Uganda, partly uh, in order to make this problem much, appear much more urgent than it is, and to highlight the need for uh, more international aid flowing to Uganda. Uh, and of course, on the other side of this, has to, uh, we have to acknowledge that there is something to be said about uh, refugees, um, host states making increasingly um, belligerent claims, if you want, towards the international community in order to accrue much needed material, material benefits and material support. Uh, of all uh, states, you, you saw, of course, that Jordan and, and Lebanon uh, made veiled attempts at state collapse if the international community is not forthcoming with aid. Something similar happens in Kenya, of all places, uh, which holds the world's largest refugee camp, the Dadaab camp. And of course, Kenya, at the same time as negotiations were taking place with uh, Jordan and uh, Lebanon, threatens to uh, close down uh, the refugee camp unless it receives more international aid from the economic, from, from the international community. So you see the perils of refugee rent-seeking behavior if the international community continues to employ these modes of action. Uh, and of course, much closer to, to home um, in Europe uh, than Kenya, uh, Turkey is another example of this, where we have um, refugee rent-seeking behavior taken to the extreme, uh, where we have um, Turkish President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan coming out in 2016 again, uh, bear in mind the similarity in terms of the timing of all of this, and negotiating with European Union uh, policymakers and elites and argue that, well, uh, we actually have all the cards in our hands. There's nothing really that the European, European Union can do. We can put uh, refugees on buses uh, and send them over. So how will you deal with these refugees if you don't make a deal? Will you kill them? Uh, and this is arguably, I, I um, argue in my project, the extent to which refugee rent-seeking behavior and refugee rentierism might actually uh, affect how states and how international organizations commodify refugees and see them not, of course, as individuals, as human beings, as um, communities that need protection, but as uh, objects of material gain, as essentially objects that can be issue linked with other things like um, economic aid and so on and so forth. So this I argue, are these are the um, lessons that we can draw so far from how Jordan and Lebanon reacted uh, to the Syrian refugee crisis and how we should um, try to ring a warning bell against uh, refugee deals or compacts, quote unquote, that 
uh, ostensibly try to help both these host states as well as the uh, vulnerable populations within them, but ultimately in the way that they're perceived and the way they operationalize uh, aid might be making uh, more harm than good. Um, and 25 minutes in, that's it. Thank you very much. Over, over to you, Tufik. <laughs> well, thank you, Gerasimos, for a fascinating uh, talk right there. Um, uh, I very much look forward to the discussion that we'll have and that the questions that we'll receive from audience members here. I would encourage folks who would be interested to uh, pose a question to Gerasimos to put them in the question and answer section. Normally, after a lecture of that uh, 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 gravity, uh, it takes a little time to somewhat absorb things. So that's the purpose of my discussion with Gerasimos now for the next 15 to 20 minutes. Take your time, formulate your ideas and put them in the question and answer uh, section in your uh, Zoom room, so to speak. Um, well, firstly, Gerasimos, I'd like to thank you for a very rich and I would argue quite uh, intellectually and politically daring uh, uh, set of ideas uh, formulated around this concept of refugee rentierism. Uh, I think you've made a pretty good case for uh, explaining both what uh, rent is and what refugee rentierism is and that we can identify forms of uh, refugee rent seeking behavior. Uh, what I'd like to sort of uh, ask you uh, or start off by asking you is uh, uh, to what extent do you see this? Uh, why did uh, it seems obvious why you chose the rentier framework, but uh, uh, do you also see this as a uh, kind of outsourcing uh, arrangement? I mean, if we're going with political economy uh, sort of uh, sets of ideas for how to, how to analyze what is taking place. Absolutely. So I, I, I think that the, the concept of rent, and of course it's, it's being developed in all sorts of ways since it came up in Middle East politics in the 1970s. I think what's particularly interesting about this is that it shows us two signs of, of the coin. So it shows us, of course, uh, on the one hand, the, the plight of uh, host states of first asylum in the Middle East and the global South more generally, in the sense that they are really in desperate need of material support, uh, primarily because, of course, as you, as you know as well, uh, forced migration tends to affect uh, global South countries much more than it does Europe or North America in terms of direct flows of forcibly displaced populations. So it gives us that side, but it also gives us the other side, which is the side of um, states across the global North and arguably international organizations that are willing to um, provide material benefits to the states in exchange for keeping those refugees within their borders. So um, I, I think that the twist is interesting and I think it, it, it says a lot about the recent trend towards externalizing uh, refugee management to uh, the global north periphery. And of course, uh, Jordan and Lebanon are, are two examples, but we can see it, we can see it in North Africa, for instance, uh, in terms of EU agreements with uh, North African states. We can see it in what Donald Trump tried to do with, with Mexico uh, in what seems like ages ago, but it was only a few months ago, actually. So we can see it in terms of how refugee rent is instrumentalized by, by both sides, arguably. Great. Um, I'm kind of interested to sort of uh, pursue further the idea of uh, the different strategies that states use when they engage in their rent-seeking behavior. 
the main examples that you raised in, in, the, uh, in your lecture focused on Jordan and uh, Lebanon. But the state that has the largest uh, refugee population, Syrian refugee population, is Turkey, of course. And you mentioned at the end of your lecture the sort of more um, hard-nosed approach, uh, quite, uh, I mean, it speaks for itself, uh, his, his words, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the European Union and a sort of uh, very, very threatening tone and very sort of callous approach, shall we say. Can you uh, speak to uh, what are the factors and uh, that lead to different forms of strategy and approach in discourse and um, the kind of uh, ideas of leverage that might, that how states perceive their own leverage vis-a-vis -vis what they might be able to get when they actually engage in this rent-seeking behavior? Absolutely. Uh... Absolutely. One of the things that I, I've uncovered in terms of or in terms of my research project and my methodology in this, which is uh, interviewing elites, um, elites across Lebanon, uh, Jordan and Turkey. Uh, what I found is that they are quite capable of understanding the extent to which they can play their hand, quote unquote, vis-a-vis -vis international targets. So what we see in Turkey uh, very, very evidently is a sense that given their proximity to, your, to the European Union, that we just have um, a land border in Evros with Greece or a sea border across um, the Aegean Sea, uh, and given the amount of, of, of refugees that had flown into, into, into Turkey, they were able to use much more extreme rhetoric vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the European Union. I call it, uh, in IR terms, I call it blackmailing. So they were able to engage in blackmailing uh, strategies vis-a-vis -vis Brussels. So you remember from that last quote that I said, that I circulated, Erdogan had a very belligerent tone here. Partly because he thought that, well, since I'm very close to my target, and since I have so many refugees that can immediately uh, flow into European, the European Union, then I can afford to be belligerent. Um, if you look back in time, you'll see that uh, somebody else that was close to Europe and had a large number of refugees uh, able to be sent across the border is uh, Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, so uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, in the 90s and 2000s would also engage in belligerent attitudes vis-a-vis -vis Italy in particular, partly because he knew that this uh, threat was so immediate that he could afford to be belligerent. In Jordan and Lebanon, what we see is a bit of a different approach, um, partly because uh, policymakers there understood that they do not, they, they lack one of these two um, factors. Of course, they have a large number of refugees, but they're not uh, contiguous vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. So if Jordan were to say, well, I'm just going to kick all the Syrian refugees out and put them in buses unless the European Union funds me, the European Union is, there is, there is no direct route for them to go there. Uh, so they adopted a much less belligerent approach that I call back scratching. So their approach has been very much help us, help you, help us in a way. So it, it, it is very much a narrative of either appealing to international norms or appealing to a sense of duty by the international community. And you see there is such a wide distance between Erdogan uh, doing uh, this belligerent tone and King Abdallah in Jordan uh, putting forth a much less belligerent rhetoric. So I argue that when you have both of these factors present, a large number of refugees and 
a uh, immediate proximity or geopolitical importance of the, the, the country, then you're much more likely to see blackmail processes. If you're missing either of those, then the state tends to be much more conciliatory on this. I don't know if that grasps your, your question. No, no, great answer. Thank you. Um, another question that I had related to uh, the actual rentier framework, uh, you mentioned uh, the rentier state theory that sort of comes out of the 70s and, um, and particularly analyzing uh, the, the, the Gulf states in particular. But uh, when we take this concept and apply it to, refu to refugees and the concept of refugee rentierism, uh, we begin to sort of see uh, a longer uh, historical uh, uh, sort of track record of this perhaps uh, taking place. And here I'm thinking in particular about Jordan uh, and the Jordanian state, uh, where if you, if you spend uh, enough time in the Levant region, there, there tends to be a kind of feeling that Jordan has benefited off of many of the crises that have taken place uh, in the region from its instability and its instabilities, be that Iraq, Lebanon, the, the situation in Israel, Palestine, and now of course, Syria. Can you speak to the evolution of refugee rentier states uh, and particularly the Jordanian example and what might be different or new about its evolution in the Syrian refugee uh, incarnation, so to speak. Yeah, would you agree? Point. Would you agree that the re refugee rentierism uh, in in Jordan, in particular, has been a phenomena that is carried forth and and now takes on its its current incarnation? That's a great. That's a great question. Actually, uh, I'm. The argument I'm making uh, in terms of Jordan in particular, which I, think, which I agree is a fascinating case vis-a-vis -vis like the Levant, is that uh, this approach to securing aid from international donors has been present from the very beginning. So uh, I don't mean to essentialize or orientalize uh, the, the state, but I think most of us would agree that um, from Transjordan up until today, we see that because of a number of reasons, uh, Jordan has been reliant on international aid to support uh, the state, uh, to support the military, to support its functioning over time. Uh, and in fact, I did a bit of archival work for this project in London, and you'd be surprised, I mean, I don't know if you'd be surprised, you might not be surprised to find out that um, similar rationale existed right after the, the first Arab-Israeli war. So the Jordanian responses to, to the Nakba had a lot to do with, well, um, we are able to host these um, refugees, these Palestinians, because of course we'll do what we can, but we need support. And we need, and of course, UNRWA becomes um, uh, involved in this in, in all sorts of ways. Um, and that continues in 1967, continues with the Iraqis, uh, much more recently, of course, up until today. Uh, so you'll see that this is an ever-present phenomenon. In terms of an evolution, I would say very interestingly, um, Jordan evolves uh, firstly, in terms of the targets of this, the rent-seeking behavior initially targets the British and the Americans. Uh, more recently, this is, seems to be a much more global approach to the West. We see Jordan developing all sorts of strategies vis-a-vis -vis the European Union, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, the UNHCR. Uh, so last time I was in, in Amman, um, a year or so ago, I, I was struck by the extent to which the Jordanian state bureaucracy had developed all sorts of mechanisms to talk to international donors. 
Uh, so that's one difference that didn't exist in the past. And the second difference, I would say, in terms of the evolution of the Jordanian refugee rancher state, has to do with the extent to which it's able to uh, diffuse its model regionally. Uh, so uh, Lebanon, for instance, um, in its negotiations with uh, a number of European Union partners, uh, would defer to the Jordanian uh, delegation to do the negotiating uh, part. So there was a process of learning by the Lebanese state from the Jordanian experience. So this element of cross-border cooperation, cross-border diffusion is also something new, I think. But arguably, I think it's, it's, been, it's been the same, um, the same type of mindset does tend to go back quite a few decades. Mm. I'll ask one more question because it seems we have a lot of questions from the audience, which I'm happy to get to soon, but uh, uh, I'll leave it at this. Uh, your, your talk tended to focus mostly when you speak and conceptualize rent of uh, rent being uh, mo having monetary value uh, and uh, the material gain aspect of it. Can you speak to, uh, there, there's another dimension of rent that could be considered a political rent and political concessions that countries may be able to uh, extract as a function of, 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 of the, these arrangements. Uh, in the Syrian refugee example, or perhaps others, can you speak to the political dimensions of political rent that might be extracted? Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I, I wasn't thinking of the political side or the, the immaterial side, right? To put it in, in, in more critical terms, I suppose. I, had, I wasn't thinking of this uh, partly because uh, the Jordanian and Lebanese state were so stricken for material support that it didn't seem relevant to them and, and Turkey, of course, as well. Uh, but if you look at other cases um, in the Middle East, for instance, you'll see that uh, this sort of uh, political support carries a lot of weight. Uh, I was reading a paper by um, uh, Kelsey Norman, by no Dr. Norman, who works on Egypt and North Africa. And she was exploring how the Sisi regime in Egypt responded uh, to um, the, the Syrian refugee crisis and more broadly, the sort of Eastern Mediterranean refugee crisis. And what she found out from her interviews in Cairo is that um, Egyptians didn't really want European funding so much what they really wanted, and I'm putting it very simply, I suppose, and, and crudely, is they were looking for um, normative support. They were quite keen to have Sisi being presented as a, um, as a recognized leader, as a partner of European Union states, as a key actor in terms of managing North African responses to the refugee crisis. So for, for a country like Egypt, for instance, the political aspect of refugee rent matters much more for a number of reasons that that's not the case in the Lebanese and Jordanian case but I think it's it's equally valid these immaterial supports um, mechanisms that can be granted to refugee states we haven't really explored them yet and I think I think they're definitely there I think they're definitely there fantastic Gerasimus so I'm going to transition to taking questions from the audience I encourage people to put those questions down there but please be uh succinct with the questions because it's not always so easy to sort of read them and uh, synthesize them and get them back to Gerasimus. Um, so we'll start with a question from uh, Professor Dawn Chatty, uh, who writes the following. She, she writes, thank you, Gerasimus. I have read your articles on this topic and now I look forward to reading the book. I wonder, do you think that the Jordanian government felt that it missed an opportunity 
than by not forcing Iraqi refugees in camps five years ago? No, that's a, that's a great question, Professor Tati. I think uh, my understanding of this, given um, interviews in uh, Jordan, is that the Jordanian government did think that there are a few missed opportunities in how they manage the Syrian refugee crisis, firstly. Uh, so one of the things that I mentioned in my work is this quote that I heard over, in, over and over in a number of, of ways from policymakers that, well, look at what Turkey gained out of this. It gained uh, 6 billion euros and look at what we gained. And we really should have blackmailed the European Union like Turkey did. So there was a lot of um, uh, regret in terms of the strategy that they employed firstly on the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, the extent to which it would have changed is, is open to debate, of course. I think that uh, they, in terms of the Iraqis, my sense is that they wouldn't have benefited much more from an incumbent policy there, uh, partly because they, there was a significant amount of refugee rent being granted to Jordanians from the presence of the Iraqi community there. So we're talking about specific neighborhoods in Amman. We're talking about specific occupations. We're talking about purchases of, of flats and land. All of this, I think, would not have been there if they had pursued a much different policy of, of uh, setting up camps. So I think arguably looking back, probably it was um, it, it served, it was economically beneficial for the Jordanian state as, as it transpired. Okay, thank you. We have another question from someone called Line Robin, who, who writes, the, the figures and trends that you have introduced date from 2016 and 2017. Uh, what about today? Uh, is it still the same trend in Lebanon especially? Are there any changes considering the crisis in the country? Oh, there's tremendous changes. You're absolutely right. Uh, so um, the changes, I think, are, are twofold. Firstly, uh, they have to do with the emergence of specific global norms around the issue of refugee management. So the global refugee regime has shifted to take into account the benefit, quote unquote, that can be accrued from such um, migration management techniques. So if you look, for instance, at the uh, emergence of the Global Refugee Compact, you'll see that um, this sort of win-win um, crisis as a developmental opportunity sort of rhetoric is embedded in, in those documents. And these are, of course, uh, widely, um, widely negotiated and agreed. So I think that's partly what has changed. The second thing that has changed, I think, is that um, 2016, um, I don't know if, if Tufika agrees, uh, 2016 was really the, the, the heyday of the international community's focus on the Syrian refugee crisis. Things went, went a bit awry once uh, the EU-Turkey uh, statement was signed in, in mid-2016. After that, uh, Syrian refugees tended to, to, to step to the sidelines of international news. Once the, the global pandemic hit, there is even less of an effort to um, continue supporting Lebanon and Jordan to the extent that they were before. So I think these, both of these have, have changed remarkably, but I think the 2015-2016 period is indicative of this broader trend that might actually resurface once we, we go back to seeing refugees as a central piece of global news. Okay, thank you. We have a question from uh, Miriam Twicht, 
who thanks you for your very interesting talk and uh, has a question. Uh, I'll try and synthesize it. She writes, I was wondering if Gerasimus could uh, extend on his remarks regarding the prima facie uh, refugee status of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. As far as I have ever been able to find, Syrian refugees were de jure prima facie refugees in contrast to refugees from South and Middle Iraq in the period between 2006 and 2009. I understood this in line with the 1998 mem uh, Memorandum of Understanding and the remarks that for recognized refugees, a durable solution needs to be found outside of Jordan. But maybe I have been horribly wrong. I would really like to know more about what Gerasimus means by prima facie, what is actually formulated on people's documents, and if possible, also for my own work. And what are your sources? Absolutely. I would say uh, the easiest thing for this, uh, Miriam, is to, if you send me an email, uh, feel free to, and we can, we can discuss sources and we can discuss this. So what I meant by this is the uh, Jordan, not Lebanon. So I'm talking about uh, Syrian refugees coming into uh, Jordan informally in that period where the formal uh, border crossings were closed and at the time at which the UNHCR was still allowed to register Syrian refugees because as you probably know that has stopped that stopped a few years later. So at this precise time we are talking about um, Syrians, not Palestinians, Syrian uh, refugees being counted officially as uh, as being taken as prima facie refugees within the country without any further uh, need of examination. But that changed relatively soon afterwards. But I'm happy, I'm happy to, 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 to talk over email perhaps uh, for that specific point. Okay. We have a question from Carlos Jair Martinez who asked several questions related to, um, I guess the migration of Syrians and Levantines, Palestinians, Lebanese, to South America in the 1880s. Uh, but his question, he has several questions. Uh, the, the one I think most relevant here to the discussion relates to how Latin American countries uh, may be dealing with Syrian refugees today. And perhaps if I could expand on that, uh, what, what about countries that are not actually these countries that are, uh, have have these huge refugee populations, but are doing repatriation. Is there any element of refugee rentierism going on there? I've um, that's that's a great question. Actually, I wish I could tell you more about Latin America, but I I can only tell you the extent to which I know of the cases via an article I'm co-authoring with with a great colleague of mine called uh, Feline Fryer. So if uh, Carlos, you're interested in this, I would look her up and look up her work. And what we're arguing in that article is that. Uh, Latin American countries also developed policies of refugee rentierism, particularly with regard to Ecuador. So if you look at the situation as it, had, as it has evolved over the last few years, you'll see that there is also an element of refugee rentierism diffusion taking place uh, there as well, which shouldn't, which shouldn't surprise you because this is something that is becoming a, a global phenomenon. I don't know more about um, Syrian refugees there uh, per se, uh, all I know is that there is a, an element of solidarity and a, a, a Syrian community there, but I would direct you to Feline for, for a bit more work actually on this. Okay, William Falk, does refugee rent specifically refer to situations where the money is not being used to benefit the refugees? Uh, I would say yes. So the, the understanding of this is that it is an unearned source of income uh, in the sense that 
uh, the money that is directly going to the support of Syrian refugees should not be considered an instrument of economic rent, of refugee rent. But any sort of other money or material benefits that go to the betterment, uh, what was my example in the presentation, um, the Lebanese parliament, for instance, or the support of vulnerable Jordanian communities. Uh, there's a lot of examples of, for instance, international aid um, granted for building of schools in Jordan and all sorts of things like this. Um, one point of this, to think if I may, because it's, it's a good point I should have mentioned in my, in my uh, lecture, has to do with uh, a very interesting approach to the Jordanian uh, policymaking vis-a-vis -vis international donors, where we have a set requirement that at any point uh, where an international donor wants to give some money to Syria to support Syrian refugees in Jordan, the Jordanian government will come in and say that you also need to provide a certain percentage of that money to support vulnerable Jordanians. And it, it varies, I think it's now 50-50 or a bit less than this. Um, my question, of course, to the Jordanians when I was interviewing them was, well, what do you do if you have a state that wants to support Syrian refugees in your country, but doesn't want to match that funding with funding for, for Jordanians as well? And the answer is that they would, re they would reject the funding. Uh, mm -hmm. So they would not take up money if that money did not also involve a distinct refugee rentier component, which I think is, is quite interesting. Right. Uh, we have a question from Valbiner Karsten, who writes, would you also regard Turkey as a state benefiting from hosting refugees as Jordan and Lebanon in your heavily disputable given that the so-called, quote, refugee deal provides Turkey with 6 billion euros against expenses of the Turkish state and society, uh, which already exceed the amount of 25 billion euros? Yeah. Um, I that's a, that's a great question. So I do consider Turkey to be a refugee rentier state, uh, given the amount of support it is getting from the international community. What I want to make clear, however, in this uh, is that I'm, I'm not taking a side, I'm trying very hard to not take a side for or against uh, what the ho what host states of, of refugees are doing to secure uh, material benefits. Uh, I've, I've talked to people across all three states, and one of the common aspects here has to do with the uh, Firstly, the generosity of the states, that they opened up their border and allowed uh, Syrians to come and live in Lebanon, in Turkey, and in, in Jordan, but also the extent to which this was economically harmful for these three states. So the refugee rentier framework doesn't really take a normative stance for or against this phenomenon, much like oil rentierism doesn't really say, well, Saudi Arabia is bad because it, it relies on oil to support its, its, its state. So. I, I completely sympathize with the argument and I hope I wasn't making a normative assumption here, so. No worries. Uh, we have a question from Delal Stevens who asked, to what extent do you think UNHCR and NGOs are complicit in this refugee rentier model because of protection difficulties in the region and lack of resettlement options? I wouldn't, uh, great question. I, I, I wouldn't go so far as, as saying complicit. I would say that uh, the framework of cooperation, of international cooperation in both Lebanon and Jordan, um, such as the 3RP, for instance, and all this, uh, is reliant on, on the involvement of NGOs, uh, on, of UNHCR and uh, other NGOs. Um, to the extent to which they have the power uh, to um, uh, undermine or object uh, the rules agreed is something that is open to interpretation. My understanding of this from, from my work in the region uh, is that um, NGOs tend to typically follow um, the 
consensus across interstate agreements and do their best in terms of protecting these vulnerable populations. But if you were to take an objective look or a, um, a snapshot of what's happening in, in Jordan and Lebanon, they are they, they absolutely they are involved in the management of Syrian refugees and they are very much involved in the uh, production and reproduction of, of refugee rent. Great. We have a question from Dr. Henry Hoger, who writes, European willingness to take Syrian refugees has been paltry, with one or two exceptions. Do you think, quote, migration diplomacy by, for example, Jordan and Lebanon can persuade Europeans that part of the answer might be more generous asylum policies of their own, not just financial contributions to rentier host countries? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, hope there, there is a hope that this, that this is the outcome, although I'm not optimistic. What we see, um, I, I, I work in Britain, so what you see, for instance, in the UK government, but also elsewhere in other European states, is the approach of um, as to fix it, externalizing this phenomenon to uh, host states uh, across the periphery, uh, of, of providing material support and of increasing the capacity of refugee host states precisely so that uh, the, um, uh, the, the problem doesn't reach uh, global north shores. So I'm not optimistic vis-a-vis -vis that. What I, uh, what I could say is that uh, the, the, the phenomenon of providing refugee rent to, to countries like Jordan or Lebanon or Turkey is a short-term solution. Uh, so unless there are long-term solutions being put on the ground, then it is highly unlikely that this will solve the matter of global refugee governance. So perhaps once we get to a point where we see that the phenomenon of refugee rentierism has diffused across the global south, and it's actually untenable for Europe and North America to continue just paying annual sums of money, then there might be a, an understanding that we need to uh, engage in a much more just and perhaps humane, I would say as well, solution to, to, to the management of refugees. Thank you. We have another question from Dr. Alex Bellum, who writes, uh, thank you, Gerasimus, for your very interesting talk. I want to ask about Syrians who come and go across the border. To my knowledge, there are very many who do this, as did Iraqi groups before the Syrian war. Are these included in the Jordanian Lebanese government figures? And how do you, how do these groups fit into your analysis? They're not. Uh, to to my to my uh, to my understanding, they're not. So, uh, in terms of Jordanian numbers in particular, but also Lebanese, uh, this type of uh, cyclical uh, cyclical migration, if you want to call it that, uh, is something that is not that is not accounted for. Um, whether they affect the analysis or not, I would say. Um, the numbers are such that at the end of the day, the, the argument still holds. Um, and I would say, even if we are talking about a, a type of migration that is of large numbers, then it would probably just strengthen the framework rather than, than weaken it. Uh, but I would say, um, if you want to think about it theoretically, the only way it would affect the argument would be if this is migration that somehow uh, makes it to the shores of global uh, north donors. And it doesn't, because we're talking about uh, migration uh, across borders in, in Lebanon and Jordan. So I say it, it doesn't really make uh, a lot of difference. Okay. Uh, we had two questions from Lara Ashawaure, but I'm going to just take one of them just for purposes of time and for the fact that we have 
uh, a fair amount of other questions to go through. She writes, your argument regarding making economic deals for hosting refugees is understood, but how can poor countries like Jordan and Lebanon host that number of refugees? Uh, in, in brackets, the most two host, hosting countries in the world in regards to their population uh, per capita, I imagine she means, without the help of the international community. What alternatives do you think that they have in order to manage this situation? Yeah, great question. No, um, I do not mean to imply at all that these countries should be self-sufficient. And I think I, I try to make that clear from the very beginning that these are countries that are really inordinately affected by forced migration. So there is something that has to be uh, done about this. Um, you're talking to somebody who would be, a, a, I suppose, a bit of a neo-realist in IR terms. Uh, but I would say the, the answer to your question has to do with uh, going back to uh, the way the international community is supposed to work, going back to the basis of the global refugee regime and seeing why is it that institutions like UNHCR have been unable to cater to the demands of these uh, refugee communities? And you'll see that there is a problem there that has to do, and um, this is what uh, Alexander Betts writes about uh, from Oxford. Uh, this has to do with the way the, the refugee regime has been undermined over a number of years in order to essentially uh, prioritize the, um, the needs and the wishes of richer states of the global north. So I would say the, the, the way forward might be to go back and revisit how the global refugee regime works and how we can restore some sort of semblance of order. But I completely share your point in the sense that um, there is uh, the need to restore agency in countries like Lebanon and Jordan, given the, the plight uh, of, of, of refugees within their territory. I shall completely agree. We have a question from Yusuf Lemma who says, who asks, is it not more cost-effective and beneficial for the EU to address the root problem of the refugees at the source rather than treating the current consequences or is it too complicated politically? That's, yes, so with, with my students, I teach, I teach migration politics for my, my third year students in Birmingham. And this is one of the questions that I have them answer for their essays. So I wish I could do it justice in 30 seconds. Uh, but I would say, Yusuf, that uh, it would be logical to say that these, these problems should be treated um, in terms of uh, the, the root problems rather than the consequences. And there's only so much you can do if you continue, um, if you continue just addressing the consequences of this. Um, it's, 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 a political, it's a political quagmire. Uh, try convincing uh, European member states that the Syrian civil war was was partly uh, due to colonial or post-colonial involvement. Uh, so it's, um, to think, I don't know what you think about this, but it's uh, arguably there is something to be said about how it is much easier for European and North American countries to treat the consequences of this uh, on the short term than to try to address it in any sort of long-term solution. But um, Unfortunately or not, the, the way the, the refugee rentier state sort of uh, way of dealing with this problem provides a short term solution, like a patch over this problem that uh, meets the, the expectations of a number of, of Western governments, unfortunately. Sure. We have a question from Martha 
Trigiano, I hope I got that right, who asks, it seems to me that in their essence, Jordan or Lebanon, the, the Jordan or Lebanon compacts and the EU-Turkey statement deal, deal show a similar, quote, rental behavior and intention to instrumentalize refugees as commodities. Why do you think the, the Turkey deal was highly criticized while Jordan and Lebanon deals might be seen as, quote, best practice? Gosh, that's a brilliant question, actually. Uh, that's, a, that's, 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 that's a very tricky question as well. I would say that uh, it might go back to what Tufik asked at the very beginning of the session, which has to do with the different uh, negotiating practices. Uh, so the fact that the EU-Turkey deal uh, was predicated on a particularly belligerent approach by Turkey may have to uh, do with the fact that it was vilified almost um, uh, immediately. I would say uh, we can go beyond that sort of initial assumption and look at the very uh, arguments of, uh, uh, look at the very sort of processes that the, the three agreements stipulate, right? So you will see, for instance, um, that uh, in the EU-Turkey deal agreement, we have Turkey being designated a safe country for the return of Syrian refugees from Greece and Europe, which is a problematic statement. Uh, you will see uh, a very sort of instrumentalist approach in terms of securing uh, visa-free access to European Union member states for Turkish citizens. So uh, beyond perhaps the negotiating tactics behind it, you could also say that it's been criticized partly because um, it, it stipulated things that are quite problematic, like the uh, the very specifics of the EU-Turkey deal actually proved to to work to the expense of Syrian refugees, rather at all to any kind of their favor. Okay. okay. We have a question from Sara Pan Algara, who asks, usually the narrative is that the EU is not benefiting from hosting refugees, but rather the opposite. Can one make the case that the EU has also taken a rentier approach to the refugee crisis and that the EU has followed a migration diplomacy approach? The EU, I would argue, uh, yes, take a look at my piece with Fiona. The, the, EU, the EU's approach to this um, is to develop a very concrete migration diplomacy strategy that rests very much on questions of externalization, of linking aid uh, to management, of uh, preventing, for instance, the outflow of refugees from Libya uh, across the Mediterranean. So all of this have to do with a very concrete migration diplomacy plan. Um, very interestingly, I, I don't know how you define the EU, but if you look at individual EU member states, you'll see very interestingly how they also adopt refugee rent seeking strategies. So um, I'm Greek, uh, originally born and raised, and one of the things that I've been um, interested to watch is how the previous um, Greek government under Tsipras uh, instrumentalized Syrian refugees to quite an extent. Uh, at some point, Panos Kamenos, who used to be the Minister of Defense, was saying that, well, um, this was in the process of the bailout negotiations with Brussels. Um, Panos Kamenos was quoted as saying, well, we'll open up the borders uh, and let Syrian, uh, we let the refugees go all the way to Berlin unless um, Germany and uh, Chancellor Merkel agrees to give us a better uh, bailout deal. So I don't think um, refugee rentierism is a global South phenomenon and we shouldn't essentialize it as such. 
We can see it in the negotiations between the Italian government and Brussels for more money uh, to cater to the needs of the Italians. We can see it in Greece. Uh, so we can see it in Eastern Europe as well, actually. So this, this is a lot to do with an asymmetry of power uh, between states. It could be Jordan and Lebanon vis-a-vis -vis global North states. It could be the so-called European South versus the so-called European North. So I think it happens um, intra-EU as well as outside the EU. Great. We have time for one question, one more question. We're basically at time now, but uh, and sorry, uh, like it's it's been it's been a bit busy. It seems. No, on the contrary, it's been great and very lively. And I thank our audience as well as well as uh, congratulate you for your ability to play a very uh, good ping pong game or tennis game, so to speak. Um, the question that I wanted to the, the final question that I wanted to pick out here was one going back to one Yusuf Lama who asked a, a question that is, what is your estimate of the percentage of actual grants and aid that eventually filter down to individual refugees? After all, administrative management and other costs have been dealt with. I wish I wish I had a figure. Um, I don't have a precise number. Uh, and this is partly why uh, this needs much more research uh, than I have done already. So this is the next step in what I'm trying to do is establish uh, the extent to which uh, European Union and Western aid uh, is actually trickling down to individual refugees. Because the problem here has to do with a question that um, another person asked earlier on in terms of establishing refugee rent. So how much, so say Jordan receives uh, X number of millions of dollars. Well, how do you calculate the needs of each refugee living in Jordan? And how do you, how are you able to separate that from the rest of the money accrued? It's, it's a very, very difficult, um, very difficult estimate. Uh, the only sort of number I have is the number that Hariri talked about uh, back in 2016, where he said, well, we need about $12,000 per year per refugee in Lebanon. The extent to which that actually trickles down to them is, is dubious in terms of the money that Lebanon has been able to, to secure uh, internationally. So, um, yes, I have um, uh, to think, can I ask you, I see something from Vanessa, because she asked a question twice. Do uh, you mind if I answer it very, very fast? Sure, sure. Well, let's uh, read it. Uh, thanks to Gerasmus for the interesting presentation. I wonder how do you see the different positions of Jordan, of the Jordanian Lebanese governments with respect to the return of Syrian refugees? Interestingly, the Lebanese authorities participated in the International Conference of Refugee Return organized by the Syrian regime and supported by Russia, while the Jordanians did not participate. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's a brilliant uh, question, partly because it ties into a whole underexplored aspect of this that has to do with, well, how do you manage, how do you manage the return of, of Syrian refugees and refugee communities? And I would say it ties, um, my, my initial explanation at least, is that it ties to the narratives that the two governments have put forth vis-a-vis -vis Syrian refugees. Um, so for uh, Jordan, we have very much a narrative of uh, Syrian refugees being welcome, Syrian refugees being sheltered. Uh, that goes back to Dufik's question about how the Jordanian state manages refugees going back to the Palestinians fleeing the war in 1948. So if Jordan was to participate in the conference and start arguing for the return of Syrian refugees, then that would invalidate their claim to hospitality, uh, the whole sort of basis 
of the Jordanian rentier state more generally. So I say it has a lot to do with rhetoric and it has a lot to do with state identity. It also has a lot to do with the particular economic plight of the Lebanese state vis-a-vis -vis refugees that is not shared, I think, with the Jordanian state. So I think it's a, I'm giving you a short answer to a very, very complex, uh, complex question, I think. But thank you for raising it. Well, thank you for all your answers tonight, as well as for your lecture. Uh, we've pretty much run out of time because people's attention span in the Zoom Corona era has uh, more or less uh, topped out. But with that said, you, you were still, we have at least 62 participants who hung on for a good hour and 20 minutes. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Gerasimos, for uh, your lecture, as well as the audience members for all their questions and their uh, participation today. Please uh, check out our website to see some uh, of the forthcoming webinars that we have planned, as well as recordings of the previous webinars that we have, as well as the different activities that the Council for British Research in the Levant organizes. You can find all that stuff at cbrl.ac.uk, and you can also sign up as a member. So check us out online, and otherwise have a great evening. Thank you all. Thank you.